Welcome, everyone, to Dad Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz. Want to welcome everybody to the show. Hope you could spend the next hour with us. If you are joining us for the first time and want more information about our show, please visit us on the web at deadtalklive.com. This show is uh, streamed live every day, Monday through Friday, on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter simultaneously. Again, I want to say a big thank you to all our moderators across Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, all the platforms, Twitter. Uh, thank you guys for the amazing work and job that you do. Of course, I want to welcome our viewers. We've got Philip Thompson, CC Wheezy. Uh, Philip Thompson is both on YouTube and Facebook. <laughs> Make sure you don't want to miss any angle. Welcome, Philip. Lindsay Sparks is with us from Canada. Lisa is with us as well on Facebook. Vanessa is joining us on Instagram. Carol Ass with the kick-ass name on Instagram is joining us. Welcome, Carol. Uh, Marie is joining us. Oh, Marie has changed her Instagram handle. That's right. So she, I'm going to, you know, you guys are like, where's Marie? Marie? Where's Marie? Marie's new Instagram handle is Dead Talk Live Moderator. So we got to give her kudo points for the originality on that one. Welcome, Marie. So if you guys are looking for Marie, that's her. Dead Talk Live Moderator on Instagram. Want to make sure you get the recognition you deserve, Marie. Uh, Natural is also joining us on Instagram. Willie G is also with us. You know what, guys? It's been one of those days today. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. It has been one of those days. Uh, I'll tell you what. In about 20 years from now, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book, and I'm going to title it Entering the Entertainment Industry in Your Mid-40s. And man, do I have a lot to say. <laughs> so keep an eye out for that one in about 20 years from now. It's going to be a hell of a read. One year into this business, it's going to be a hell of a read. I'll tell you that much. Uh, so keep your eyes peeled 20 years from now. Uh, Khaleesi is with us. Welcome, Khaleesi. Uh, Megan is also joining us on Facebook. So on the bright side today this is very very cool rebecca breeds who is the star of clarice on cbs's clarice uh retweeted one of our tweets today on twitter which is very very cool i have not had the honor yet to chat with rebecca but uh and i gotta give total credit to this to our producer jesse bright who is also our director of social media she handles a lot, almost all of the posts, and I got to give her kudos. Uh, she's been great uh, doing that. And Rebecca, who plays Clarice, retweeted one of our tweets today. Uh, and of course, Michael Cudlitz liked it. Michael has been a guest on our show uh, almost a year ago. He is coming back. He's coming back to talk about Clarice. Of course, when Rebecca retweeted our tweet, uh, I reached out to her. I haven't reached out to her yet because, you know, I'm like, she must be so inundated right now with people wanting to talk to her on how successful the show is. So I'm like, I'm going to let things simmer down a little bit before reaching out to her reps. But, you know, when she retweeted our tweet today, I sent her a private message, of course, inviting her to our show. 
letting her know that Michael Cudlitz is knows us. He's been on our show, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, let's see. Carol Ass writes, I have a library. I already want to have your book. I tell you what, I mean, it's going to be something, Carol. I've only, April 25th, we passed the one-year mark. And this show, I've said it many times, it, it just started out as a test just to see, you know, how it would work out. Never expecting it to turn into what it has turned into. We have had well over 50 celebrity guests now, a year in, many more to come. Uh, just great things. And I have a manager, I have a talent agent, uh, I've got a lawyer on retention. Oh my God, I've got insurance. And this thing just blows up and it becomes uh, a lot bigger than you ever expected. I have 20, around 20 wonderful people as part of our team. Uh, all day, every day, I talk to publicists, uh, uh, agents, managers, studios. Uh, then I'm dealing with our editors. I'm dealing with all of our people. I do a little bit of everything. I mean, you know, this is this is our show, Dead Talk Live. It's uh, my production company, Dead Talk Media, LLC. So something that started out as just a test and an experiment has exploded into what it is today. And it's great. It's great. But you are really exposed to a world that, you know, we don't know. Uh, as fans. Now, I don't even know where to place myself anymore. It's sort of blurry. Am I in that world? I know I've definitely, <laughs> I'm in the door. Uh, so I guess I am a part of that world. I'm talking to all these people. I'm meeting amazing new people. There are, there really are such amazing people in this industry. Uh, they're wonderful. They're great. It's it's just all the logistics uh, and exposed to a whole new protocol on how things work. And there's like a lingo you're supposed to learn. And there's no book. There's no manual, you know, you know introduction to, to the entertainment industry 101. No, you got to learn as you go. And it's a very tight line you have to walk. You got to take some risks you got to weigh the risk, you know, reward uh, ratio. Uh, but there is no manual. You got to sort of ask questions to the people you can trust. I've been blessed to have people in this industry who I've become very friendly with, and they have been great and offered me some great advice. I, I am in this uncharted territory. Uh, I've just got a year under my belt right now, and I'm just, you know, I'm learning my way. I'm figuring things out. I've got big plans for my production company. Uh, I'm going to let you guys in on it. I actually want to finance a film uh, in the next year's time. I'm going to finance Dead Talk Media LLC is going to do a horror film. Uh it's pretty much going to happen. Uh, please don't start sending me scripts yet. I'm not in that 
I'm not there yet. So if you got good script, hold on to it. I'll let you know when I'm ready to start receiving them. But uh, yeah, I've got big plans for this production company, uh, for our team. We do have a distribution deal in place. I still cannot share with you guys where we're going to end up. I'm hoping to be a, you know, get the green light to let you know which streaming service we have reached an agreement with, but we have reached an agreement with a streaming service. Uh, I'm just not allowed to announce it yet. Uh, it has to go through the whole process of marketing. There has to be public releases. It has to go through a whole formal process. And then one day, I don't know if I'll announce it here on the show, or one day you guys will open up to any one of our social media pages, and bam, you'll just see it right there. Dead Talk Live is going to so-and-so. So please keep a lookout for that. Uh, Daniel wants to audition. Hey, why not, Daniel? I don't know what, I know it's going to be a horror movie. Because, of course, we are a horror show, and horror movies are very inexpensive to produce. But I've always said it. You do not need a lot of money to make a good horror flick. You just have to have the right script, the right actors, the right people in place. And you can do a horror movie relatively cheap. And as I mentioned yesterday... Uh, how back in the days, you know, there used to be the B-movie category. And I went to a whole spiel yesterday on how in today's world, uh, with everything being digital, I don't really believe the B, uh, you know, class of movies is relevant anymore in today's world. There are so, so many amazing independent films, especially in the horror genre out there that were done to what is referred to, you know, very small to zero budgets. I mean, it's never a zero budget. It's just a saying, but it it's, it's affordable. It's very affordable. So, yeah, we're going to be making a movie. We're going to be making a horror movie. I'm excited about it. It's going to be an adventure. Uh, I just can't wait for it. I absolutely cannot wait to expand. Uh Dead Talk Live is just the beginning. Dead Talk Live will always be here. This is this is my baby. This is what I put together, and I'm just so grateful for the team of people that have come on board, and God bless my team. And I told it to them earlier today in our chats. We have a, a special team chat. I told them, listen, guys, uh, I love you. I am here, and I, you guys... Are in my list of priorities, you guys are right up there in the top. It's moving Dead Talk Media forward and for me to look out for you guys because they are volunteering their time and have been volunteering their time because they believed in what we are doing. So it takes a great team. Not a, a personal, not a single person by themselves can do this. So Tyler wants to be a stunt driver. All right. Uh, Daniel goes on to say, Hollywood never tends to appreciate horror films, in my opinion. I think that's changing. I really do. Horror films are definitely getting the recognition they deserve. And you can totally tell that just by the sheer amount of horror movies that are coming out. Especially now with, 
you know, since last year and the COVID era that we're living in, uh, they've been able to make horror movies because they are a cheap. You can get a profit off of them and they can be done under COVID guidelines relatively easier as opposed to a lot of other movies. Uh, but I think the horror genre is absolutely at its peak and it's only going to get bigger as time goes on. People love horror movies. People love to be scared. You know, I love horror movies. I mean, I'm not a one-dimensional person where I only like horror. I like a broad variety of movies and TV shows. Hell, me and my wife watch Outlander, you know, which I refer to as 18th century softcore porn. I don't know how many Outlander fans we have out there. Outlander is most definitely not a horror show. It's very fascinating. It's very interesting. We've been watching it slowly because of how busy we both are. We're still almost reaching the middle of season four. But I refer to Outlander. And for those of you guys that watch Outlander, Lindsay Sparks watches it. Uh, it is most definitely 18th century soft core porn. Those two just cannot keep their damn hands off each other. I'm talking about Jamie and Claire. I mean, come on, guys. Get a room. Jeez. I mean, get a room. <laughs> I mean, it got to the point where I was like, you know, I go to my wife, all right, ready to watch our soft corn, you know, soft core porn for the week. Oh, God. I love the characters, Jamie and Claire, but man, those two just can't keep their hands off each other. Is there a place on this planet where they haven't done it? They've done it on a boat. They've done it in the woods. They've done it in a castle. I mean, hell. Uh, the only thing that's missing is they haven't joined the Mile High Club. And I'm sure if Jamie travels back to the present day time, back into the 1970s, where airplanes do exist, don't check that off their list as well. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> I love Outlander. I really do. Um, we just started watching it as a... Oh, what? You know, my wife has read the books. I have not read the books. So we gave it a try, and we got hooked from the very first episode. I love that show. So I'm not a one-dimensional person. Horror is not the only thing I watch. It's my favorite genre. That's without a question. But it's, you know, I'm not one-dimensional in that way. Um, Khaleesi writes, is it as bad as Game of Thrones? Well, Game of Thrones is the softcore slash hardcore porn in Game of Thrones is a lot more spread out. In Outlander, it's just between those two bunny rabbits who go by the characters of Jamie and Claire. They can't keep their hands off each other, you know? It got to the point where I'm like, when they got to one of those scenes, I'm like, all right, you know, I've seen this a dozen times already. I'm just going to skip forward this because we've seen it so many times. <laughs> all right. All right. Enough of me rambling. Let's get on to some news. All right. Uh, horror fan, how horror fans really feel about the 80s special effects versus CGI. Now, this should be interesting. 
When digital effects and CGI began appearing in films in the early 90s, the possibilities of the technology seemed limitless. While some of those early efforts were pretty rudimentary, films like Terminator 2, Judgment Day, which was released in 91, Jurassic Park, 92, showed just how much potential the new special effects had. However, as technology became more and more powerful and directors began to implement it for more specific needs, some viewers felt it was coming at the expense of the practical effect techniques developed over the vast film history that preceded it. After all, filmmakers have used creative props, sets, and special effects to show audiences something special ever since George Millais shot A Trip to the Moon in 1902. The director used some of the same effects in the first horror film ever made. In the beginning, practical effects had a critical advantage over CGI, price. That's why the folks behind horror movies, often films produced on a lower budget, mastered creative practical effects in the 80s and 90s. However, as time marched on, CGI became more accessible and affordable. And to give you the perfect example, just look at my background. It's a screen, you know, uh, that's CGI right there. It has become a lot more affordable and practical. Uh, presenting a very price-friendly alternative to constructing elaborate practical effects. These changes have been divisive amongst horror film fans who took to the internet to let people know how they really felt about classic 80s special effects versus computer-generated uh, graphics. Uh, the debate between whether old-school practical effects were better suited to horror films than CGI has gone on for decades at this point, and proponents of either side can be found on forums, of course, such as Reddit. One thread started, uh, asked fellow horror fans if they agreed with their preference that cheesy 80s special effects are way better than CGI. The post received hundreds of comments, with many users reminiscing about the transformation of Frank in the 1987 film Hellraiser. Oh, God, was that gruesome. As a particular favorite, one particular, particularly insightful post noted that not only do practical effects have a tactile presence in the final film, but they also provide a tangible object to which actors can respond. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that is absolutely true. Put yourself in the actor's uh, position for a second. You are standing in front of this giant green screen, and you are supposed to act and interact with things that are not in your physical environment. That is very difficult to do. And kudos to all the actors today who do that. But what they're trying to say back in the 80s and 90s when that did not exist uh, and it was just purely, you know, genius special effect artists. And of course, Tom Savini is the first one that comes to mind. He was the master of it. 
uh, they have to come up with actual physical props that the actors can interact with and probably made their performances a little bit more realistic. Maybe that's a debate you could have. Uh, another person wrote a lot of practical scenes look better than CGI too, because the actual, the actors actually see what is in front of them, at least in some form. However, other fans saw the value in the positive implementation of either technology. Another commenter observed, I will agree that bad practical effects are probably better than bad CGI 90% of the time, but CGI done well is great. Practical effects done well are also great. A mix between the two done well, great. So while many horror fans are not shy about stating their preference for classic 80s special effects, it seems that others appreciate the modern filmmaking has room for both approaches. Much like science fiction and fantasy movies, horror movies ask viewers for the ultimate suspension of disbelief. Thankfully, some crafty horror filmmakers throughout cinematic history have contributed lots of effective psychological trickery dating back as far as films such as uh, late greats as James Whale, Alfred Hitchcock, George Romero, and Wes Craven, and carried on over the years through the likes of John Carpenter, James Wan, Sam Raimi, and more recently, Jordan Pele. Thanks to these fabulous directors and so many others, the phrase, it's only a movie, has been uttered under the breath of audience members millions of times, whether in theaters or the comforts of their own living rooms. The quote, it's only a movie phrase, however, does have its limitations, especially when some hokey special effects is splattered on big screen and nearly ruins the entire movie watching experience. In an effort to exercise our memories of such failed horror, fa sorry, such horrid failures, we are here to relive some of the most terrible special effects in horror movies. It should be noted that these are not cheap shots at notoriously bad horror movies, or so bad they're good horror movies, such as anything from the catalog of the late great Schlockmeister Ed Wood, who had a movie made after him with uh, Johnny Depp as a starring role, or purposefully cheesy fare like the Sharknado or Toxic Avenger movies. No, these are unforgivable instances when, for whatever reason, studios and filmmakers simply should have known better. Uh, let's see what their list is. The Talking Goat, Drag Me to Hell. Uh, animatronic Wolf Howling in the movie Wolf. Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, sparkling Edward. Oh, God. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> the Sparkling Vampire. Twilight. I Okay. I mean, I like the Twilight Saga, but the whole Sparkling Vampire thing. I'm just going to leave it at that. All right. Uh, Scorpion King. The Mummy Returns. 
the werewolf transformation in Van Helsing. That's Hugh Grant right there. No, not Hugh Grant. Sorry, Hugh Jackman. My bad. Uh, shark attack explosion in Jaws 3D. Let's see. Bad to the bone in the movie Piranha 3D. Head games on uh, the movie The Faculty. Uh, hulking Mr. Hyde in the movie The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And some of these are not low-budget films. Cat Attack in the movie Let the Right One In. Dinosaur Stampede, Peter Jackson's King Kong. Uh, every werewolf scene, an American werewolf in Paris. Oh, there's a movie where the CGI of the werewolf ruined the movie. You know, anyone who's watched American Werewolf in Paris, uh, for me, the one thing that stands out is just how horrible of the job they did in creating that werewolf. Now, take the original, An American Werewolf in London, where that was done by John Landis uh, and Rick Baker, I believe, was involved, I think, uh, was amazing. That transformation scene in American Werewolf in London, all done by practical special effects, was absolutely amazing. And then you go, you know, forward and to American Werewolf in Paris, and they use this CGI technology. And just take a look at the picture right there. That's the werewolf. I mean, the, the wolf portrayal in American Werewolf in London is a thousand times better than this. So that's it. That's the end of their list. So for me personally, guys, I love CGI. Uh, I love practical effects. I'm not picking a side. Uh, CGI in today's market has brought us some amazing movies. Uh, Go all the way back to Titanic, uh, a non-horror film, Titanic, which was the number one grossing film there for a while. A lot of that was CGI, early adaptation of CGI. And But then you have other scenes. We all know the infamous deer scene from The Walking Dead CGI, which for whatever reason was a not-so-great CGI moment in a show that is full of CGI that is amazing on The Walking Dead. But somewhere along the chain of command, that deer made it into the episode without anybody going to the special effects people and say, hey, you know what? Man, that just doesn't look right. You know? It just doesn't look right. And that deer, poor deer, even though it's a fake deer, has become the butt of so many jokes uh, in the Walking Dead universe. So, just examples of both. Uh, let's go back to even earlier, to Dawn of the Dead. You know, you had the blue zombies. Uh, George Romero wanted to show throughout the progression of Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead, uh, how the progression of the zombies happened. And Dawn was like right in the middle, still freshly dead, 
but have been decomposing for a little bit. Therefore, the blue. Uh, I love the special effects in Dawn of the Dead. Uh, that is Tom Savini's work right there. Even down to the blood, you know, for that time, it was great. Uh, Dawn of the Dead, same thing, great practical effects. Those are, you know, the artists, the, the people like uh, Tom Savini, Greg Nicotero, uh, owns his own special effects company. I believe it's called K&B. They do all the uh, uh, effects for the entire Walking Dead universe. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm not picking a side. I think there's good in both. Uh, I give a lot more kudos to today's actors who do such a great job in interacting in the CGI world where they're literally, depending on the scene that they're shooting, they're standing in front of a giant green screen. And if it's windy, they have this huge fan blowing in their face. Um, and they're supposed to act, you know, wherever that image on that green screen projects them. It could be in the middle of a rainforest. It could be walking the streets of Washington, D.C. Going back to another famous CGI scene uh, in The Walking Dead. I believe it was the beginning. Yeah, it was the beginning premiere episode of season nine when the uh, the uh, our survivors from The Walking Dead ventured into Washington, D.C. to go to the Smithsonian uh, Museum of Natural History to uh, scavenge for farming supplies. That was all CGI. It was pretty well done. It was pretty well done. So, anyway, let's move on. Now, here's an interesting one. Why Negan must die in the final season of The Walking Dead. I mean, either way, if they do kill off Negan's character in 2022, when the second half of season 11 airs, you know, that doesn't mean we're not going to see him in any of the spinoffs. So let's see why they think Negan must die in the final season of The Walking Dead. The final 24-episode season of The Walking Dead continues to shoot in Georgia, with the first eight episodes set to premiere in August, August 22nd, I believe. As the series embarks on its final story arc in the Commonwealth, and with the parent series finally ending after 11 seasons, there's only one thing left that the series must do in order to be considered a success. That's a pretty bold statement right there. And that thing is, they have to kill Negan. Despite vague rumors of a possible Negan spinoff, Negan's death is the only way to make sense of his arc, which began in the season 6 finale and led to the brutal murders of Glenn and Abraham. The series slowly rebuilt Negan after the events of All Out War, and by the end of the 10th season, he'd essentially redeemed himself, I wouldn't go that far, to everyone except Maggie, who can't get over the fact that Negan murdered her husband. You know, they make it sound like, you know, you know get over it already. Uh, there's one way, however, to achieve that, and that is by substituting Negan into Rick Grimes' arc in the comic books. 
Uh, Khaleesi says, yep, the premiere is going to be August 22nd of this year. Now, in the comic books, Rick, Michonne, and company arrive at the Commonwealth, a fully civilized society, 50,000 strong, with all the amenities of a modern civilization, including courtrooms, concert venues, even a military. However, the Commonwealth, which is run by Co- Governor Pamela Milton, is not a uh, egalitarian society. Despite the events of the apocalypse, the citizens of the Commonwealth are placed within the society based upon their pre-apocalyptic jobs. And we have discussed that before. In other words, lawyers, doctors, and politicians continue to maintain their positions at the top of the hierarchy. And while those who worked in more menial jobs continue to live in the bottom rungs. This arrangement doesn't sit well with Rick Grimes, who successfully shakes up the system and is even considering running for governor of the Commonwealth. Ultimately, however, he didn't get the chance because Rick, who was so relaxed enough in the New World Order that he had helped to build, that let his guard down and is shot and killed by the governor's weak, sniveling son, whose name is Sebastian Milton, while Rick was in bed. This should also be the fate of Negan, who seems like the most natural person remaining to fill the vacuum left by the absence of Rick Grimes. Negan knows from his own experience with the Saviors that concentrating all the power at the top is not an effective way to govern. It was Rick, moreover, who gave Negan a second chance by imprisoning him instead of killing him. And I don't think so much it was a second chance, but a way of using Negan as an example for anybody they came across who ruled in the way that Negan did, that this is what's going to happen to you if you try to do what Negan did. I don't think when he spared his life, it was to give him a second chance. And we all know that the reason that he spared his life was largely due to what Carl wrote him in those letters. Anyway, Negan can honor that debt by leading as Rick would have by building a better future for the Commonwealth. Ironically, it should cost Negan his life, which would not only bring his redemption arc full circle, but earn him in the posthumous respect of Maggie. I don't see that happening. I'm sorry. With the series coming to a close, it also makes sense for The Walking Dead to kill off one of its most popular characters, and there are only four realistic possibilities. Daryl, Carol, which is not going to happen, Maggie, and Negan. Daryl and Carol are getting their own spinoff, so that's not going to happen. Now, we know that Daryl and Carol will survive because they have a spinoff, while Maggie's esteemed place within the series took a hit when Lauren Cohen left the show for a season and a half, Negan's death would, would thus have the biggest impact and more easily fulfill the story obligations of Robert Kirkman's source material. It would also be devastating for fans of The Walking Dead, but that's the point. 
More importantly, it would not allow Negan to fully redeem himself. But Negan's death would also provide the story with some poetic justice. A senseless death would be fitting for a character responsible for so many senseless death, deaths as the leader of the saviors. It has to happen for The Walking Dead to end on the right note. Negan can help to make the future a better place while also finally facing the consequences of his past actions. It's a win-win for everyone. Now, obviously, this is just an opinion piece. Uh, you know, I can't say I agree or disagree with it. It might be the right way, depending on how the writers write it. I think if they end the Walking Dead main series with Negan dying a senseless death, it's really going to put off a lot of people. But if he does end up dying in a way of him sacrificing himself to save the community, I think that could be a risk worth taking. I really do. It all depends on the writing. It all comes down on what the buildup is and the eventuality of how his death unfolds. So it's really up to the writers and we'll have to wait and see. Uh, so let's see. Now, this is another uh, Walking Dead article. This is about fear on how Fear the Walking Dead supports the John Dory and season six villain connection theory. I have no idea what theory they're talking about. That's the only reason why I'm bringing this article up. Uh, you can see right there in the picture, you see John Dory, obviously, and our newest villain, Teddy, played by John Glover. Fear the Walking Dead Season 6, Episode 11, all but confirms that the theory about John Glover's Teddy being connected to John Dory's backstory. I have no idea what they're talking about. Fear the Walking Dead's latest episode all but... Okay, I hate when they repeat that. It's been speculated for a while that John Glover's Fear the Walking Dead character would turn out to be the same person that was previously discussed by John in episode 4. I'm trying to remember what they're talking about. During the key, John was wrestling with a huge dilemma related to the fate of Janice, uh, played by Holly Coran, who he was sure was being framed for a murder she did not commit. Of course, Janice was the one that Virginia strung up to the tree to uh, cover up what her sister Dakota did. Uh, and she suffered a very bad death. Let's just, you know, we all know the story. While struggling with what to do, John told Rabbi Jacob a story about a similar moral quandary that his father found himself in decades ago. Oh, now I see where they're going. Apparently, his father and the police force were on the trail of a serial killer who had killed several women. They figured out who the culprit was, but didn't have enough to get a conviction. So to put a dangerous man behind bars, John's father did what he thought was right and planted evidence in his closet. His actions alienated his friends, but resulted in the serial killer being incarcerated. So what are they trying to say? That Teddy is that serial killer? Uh, let's keep on reading. 
Uh, the details Dory gave about this serial killer led fans to wonder if Fear the Walking Dead was building towards him becoming an actual character on the show, specifically the one played by John Glover. As someone who was put in prison several decades ago, he'd have had to be played by an actor who was at least in his 70s, and Glover did fit the bill for that. And comments from the showrunner about the next villain having something to do with John further reinforced that theory. Now that has now that he has been officially introduced, it's become quite clear that Teddy is indeed the man John described. I am not so convinced. I'm not saying it's not. And if it is, well, John is dead. Uh, is there any way to connect him to that story? The only person that we know who knows about that story is uh, Rabbi Jacob, Peter Jacobson. Now, we all, uh, I know that Rabbi Jacob is coming in for a big story. Peter Jacobson is just too great of an actor to keep him in the background as they have been for a while now. Uh, there is a story coming for him, and it's going to be a huge story. And this might be it, because John Dory uh, only told that story to the rabbi. So that could be it. Now that, uh, so where was I? Uh, according to John, he brainwashed people into believing his extreme ideas about death and new beginnings which sounds exactly like the end is the beginning philosophy that is being taught by Teddy, which is being wholly embraced by people like Derek, who's now deceased, Riley, and dozens more. What should have washed away any lingering doubts about the connection between the two is Teddy's people using embalming fluid in episode 11, this reveal matches up well with what is known about that serial killer who John called a two-bit mortician. Ah, so the clues are adding up. Plus, he ran a compound in the Houston area, which could be where Teddy's base, the holding, is located. The two, uh, that'd be interesting if they bring the Walking Dead universe back to a prison. The two being the same character speaks to how dangerous and twisted this person really is. It appears that Teddy has been murdering innocents long before the zombie apocalypse even happened. What makes him even more threatening in his charismatic uh, persona, uh, Wes, played by Colby Holman, was both disgusted and horrified to see that Derek had become quote-unquote lost because of Teddy. Based on what Wes said, Derek was a good person until he became associated with Teddy. Teddy's ability to turn people like Derek into murderers provides a lot of insight into what Morgan and his group are up against in Fear the Walking Dead, Season 6, and perhaps Season 7 as well. And I can almost guarantee you this whole Teddy storyline is not going to wrap up in the next uh, five episodes. It's not. This is going to spill over into season seven. 
It could be that as their final conflict heats up, one among them will end up discovering Teddy's past and attempt to expose him. And that would be a great storyline to give to Rabbi Jacob. Uh, Peter Jacobson, who has been a guest on our show, is an amazing actor. Uh, I have known him. I've been watching him on the screen for so long now. He was a huge part of the show House. And it was such an honor to have him on this show and to talk to him for a full hour. It would have been fitting for this role to go to John, but unfortunately his death makes that impossible. So what do you guys think? Do you think Teddy is that crazy serial killer that John Dory told Rabbi Jacob about? I mean, everything that happens on The Walking Dead, every conversation has, you know, the ability to, if it's being, you know, if time is being spent on it, like the amount of time they spent on John telling that story, it's done for a reason. It's done for a purpose. And I think that would be great. And I know there's a big story. I mean, I don't know, no, but there has to be a big story coming up for Rabbi Jacob. He's just too good of an actor to just keep as a background supporting uh, character. Uh, he's getting a big storyline coming, and I think this would be the perfect one. I really do. So check. Oh, we're already 45 minutes in. Oh, God. All right. Let's see. Uh, I wanted to find this out. Why American Horror Story Season 10 will be split into two parts. Now, as we've discussed before, there's going to be two stories in the upcoming uh, American Horror Story. Uh, one is going to be by the sea. The other one is going to be by the sand. Beyond that, we really don't know much else about it. It is returning for its 10th season later this year. Fans will find a return to the familiar as well as some changes. For one, the upcoming season will run with the title Double Feature, which will mark the highly anticipated return of the actor Sarah Paulson and Evan Peters, and their absence was so felt in 1984. As I've stated before, I was not a big fan, even, I ever, even before I watched a single episode of 1984, going back to the 80s slasher uh, flicks. But definitely not having Sarah Paulson or Evan Peters in it hurt that season badly. And I'm so happy that they're both coming back. There are two fan favorites of the show Veterans who both took a break from the FX horror series last year. There are new faces joining American Horror Story uh, veterans, including Macaulay Culkin and Paris Jackson. Perhaps the biggest change, though, will be the show's format. On March 19th, American Horror Story co-creator Ryan Murphy announced that the title of the series is on his Twitter account. It prompted many questions, and he soon revealed that the season for double feature theme is that the new season will showcase two stories in a single season, marking a major departure from the previous nine seasons. Murphy has so far revealed that the story will be set by the sea and the second by the sand there's no information as of yet about which horror tropes the two mini seasons will tackle 
nor if the stories will be related. And knowing just how American Horror Story is done, they will find a way to intertwine those two stories. It might be subtle. It might not be so subtle. However, Murphy and co-creator Brad Falchuk have managed to interlink all of the preceding season's very diverse themes, so it's likely the dual parts of Double Feature will intertwine. I'm glad they agree. The first rationale supporting the split season is found in the title itself, Double Feature. Now considered a relic, Double Feature was once a mainstay of Hollywood. God a relic? I, I have been to double features. I'm not a relic. Anyway, simply put, moviegoers could buy one ticket to see two films. Uh, back in the day, the films in a so-called double feature were usually chosen for sharing the same subject theme, director, or lead. The other reason for the change in format for AHS was laid out by Ryan Murphy himself. Commenting on his Instagram post revealing the season's title, he said, It means two seasons for the fans airing in one calendar year. So double the viewing pleasure. So in addition to playing homage to the old trend of horror double features, the next season of AHS is also Murphy's way of giving fans what they want. More American horror stories sooner instead of later. Now go, let me go back to... Uh, the headline why american horror story season 10 will be split into two parts i'm trying to find where we got the answer to that question but if it's just to pay homage to how movie theaters used to show double features i'm a little disappointed <laughs> anyway <clears throat> in the remaining time that we have left I do have more articles, but we can save those for another day. I want to talk about a little bit about our topic for tonight, which is some of the horror's greatest TV shows. Okay, now we're going to go back and forth in time on this one. Kolchak, The Night Stalker. The 1970 series chronicling reporter Carol Kolchak played by Darren McGavin as he investigates the paranormal happenings around the country for a Chicago newspaper. Now, like I said, this is like takes place in the 1970s. It first appeared in a television movie called The Night Stalker. Uh, it was based on an unpublished novel featuring Kolchak as a Las Vegas reporter. The series ran 20 episodes featuring stories about werewolves, vampires deals with satan not that much unlike a very popular show like supernatural it's uh, using its horror roots to add to the mythology of such dealings ash versus the evil dead of course this is based on the evil dead series this is the closest fans have ever gotten to a true evil dead part four starring the original Bruce Campbell. Stranger Things. I know there are a lot of Stranger Things fans out there. I being one of them. The, this is a huge hit for Netflix. In part, changed streaming to make it the new dominant face of television. Originally developed as a limited series titled Montauk. 
set in New York, Montauk is in Long Island, high production costs forced the series to be set in the Midwest, where Indiana was the new chosen setting. Heavily inspired by horror by the 80s, specifically the works of Stephen King, and those of you out there who actually watch Stranger Things know that the time play the time frame it takes place is actually in the 1980s. The series was a result of the Duffer Brothers pitch for an adaptation of Stephen King's It due to their inexperience behind the camera. And now, of course, horror TV shows The Walking Dead. Uh, the Walking Dead revolutionized horror television, in my opinion. A fan favorite with so many people. This is the show that reignited the water cooler talk and put AMC on the map. And that is no joke. Uh, AMC has had a lot of great shows like Breaking Bad, Mad Men. But it's The Walking Dead uh, and Breaking Bad. Those two are what really put AMC as one of the leading uh I guess, channels on cable TV. Uh, of course, we all know it's based on the on Robert Kirkman's comic book by the same name. Kirkman's uh, approach to the show was to make it different from the comics, so anyone who read the comics would still be surprised on the twists and turns and differences taken on by the TV show, but still holding true to a lot of what the comic books were about. Uh, it is still... It is the number one rated uh, cable drama still to date. The Walking Dead is the number one cable drama, uh, which is a big, big uh, uh, title for it to hold. So moving on to another AMC hit, you know, I, I mean, Nosferatu on AMC is the modern twist on vampires. It is based on a novel by Joe Hill. It is a great show. I feel, I feel like it just did not get the recognition that it deserved. And even though it was popular, it nowhere near reached the popularity of The Walking Dead or other AMC shows like Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and so on. Uh, of course, Supernatural. I think Supernatural has gone on for 15 seasons it's a true powerhouse in horror television uh the warner brothers original series that chronicled the winchesters as they hunted just about every supernatural creature there is the longest continuously running american horror and fantasy series lasting 15 years with over 300 episodes the series was particular in its use of Judeo-Christian mythology, but also referenced mythology from other cultures, such as Nordic, Native American, Hindu, and uh, others appearing on the show as well. And I know we have a lot of Supernatural fans out there. Uh, Lindsay Sparks says, I love Supernatural as well. Uh, let's see we, uh, what else we have on the list here. Uh, from Dusk Till Dawn, uh, Robert Rodriguez, El Rey original series adapted from the very great horror flick, vampire flick, retells and alters the events of the first film 
including adding in characters like Seth Gecko's wife. Unlike season one, seasons two and three don't adapt subsequent films in the franchise and continue the story started in season one, which a lot of people liked. Uh, let's see, Castle Rock, the fabled city of Stephen King's works, telling the odd horror tales around the universe of King's work. It's a unique Stephen King adaptation. Neither season of Castle Rock is based on a particular book, but the town instead. It does reference numerous King's works, such as The Shawshank and Misery, featured Pennywise uh, actor Bill Skarsgård in both seasons, albeit only in cameos in season two. One of my all-time favorites, The X-Files. I grew up watching The X-Files. You know, Scully and Mulder. You know, David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson. You know, what a great TV show. Um, so, yeah, back in the 90s, I remember, you know, when it was time to watch The X-Files, this is before DVRs and all the stuff, where if you actually wanted to watch a show and were not available to watch it live, you would have to program your VCRs. That's right. But I was there. I believe the original, it would be, I believe the X-File, of course, I know it aired on Fox. And I believe it was uh, Friday nights. I could be wrong on that. My memory could be failing me. But the X-Files, I mean, it's iconic. Uh, it has produced so many movies after the original show ended. They actually brought the series back for two seasons to sort of wrap up the storyline. And uh, both actors, more in particularly Gillian Anderson, said, that's it, I'm done with the X-Files. The way they wrapped it up, uh, I think gave it good closure. Uh, I mean, the X-Files spanned so many decades to be able to wrap it up in a small synopsis is just utterly impossible. So I'm just not even going to try. But if you have not watched uh, The X-Files, you know, and are in the mood for a good long binge, definitely check it out. Uh, anyway, I'll do one more on our list. I'll just mention the title. I love this show, and that's FX's The Strain. It is vampire-based, but uh, with a completely different twist on it. Anyway, guys, we have less than a minute. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Uh, it's been a great hour. Love talking to you guys every night. Please visit us at deadtalklive.com. Uh, you can be a part of our live audience Monday through Friday, 9.30 p.m. on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. I'll be back on with you guys tomorrow night. Uh, Khaleesi writes, The X-Files was on Friday nights at 9 p.m. You see, my memory is not failing me. I'll see you guys tomorrow night, which will be Friday night. Until then, stay safe and always stay walking. Good night.